If you would, take a copy of the scriptures and turn uh, to the book of Ephesians, chapter 1. Pastor Thomas was preaching out of this wonderful book and has been for the past several weeks. And he made a comment last week that if he got it wrong, I would stand up here and correct him this morning. I promise you, I would not stand up here and correct Pastor Thomas. <laughs> if we had a disagreement, we would talk about it behind closed doors. But Pastor Thomas has been very accurate in this text and so there's no correction needed. The context, and we're continuing where he left off, the spiritual blessings of Christ. After Paul gives his traditional greetings that he normally gives in most of his writings and his salutations, he immediately, in this book, starts to list the blessings that believers enjoy in their union with Christ. And it's almost like it's a hymn. We'll see a crescendo building here up through verse 14 in this. He, he starts in verse 3. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He speaks of God's electing grace. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world in verse 4. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ. In verses 4 and 5. Paul speaks of God's redeeming grace. In verse 7, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. You see how He's expounding on these blessings that we as believers enjoy in Christ. He speaks of God's sanctifying grace in the middle of verse 4, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. And, as Pastor Thomas preached last week, Paul speaks of God's uniting grace. To unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth, in verse 10. As precious as these blessings are to the believer, we should never lose sight of the end goal, though, of these blessings. We are not the end goal. Our happiness is not the end goal. Even our position in Christ is not the end goal, although it gets us to the end goal. And the end goal is the praise of our triune God to the praise of His glory. We will see that phrase throughout this passage. Yes, we are indeed recipients of these great blessings. But these great blessings should lead us to doxology, to worship, to praise the triune God. In our passage today, the Apostle will emphatically point us to that end, the goal of these blessings. And I think that we should, and that should be our primary focus. A lot of times we focus on ourselves. Wow, look what God has done for me. But that should turn around and say, praise God. He blesses us primarily for His glory. 
I would like to present this passage in, in three parts, under three headings. A, the goal of redemption. Excuse me. A, the God of redemption. B, the gospel of redemption. And C, the goal of redemption. It is my sincere hope and prayer that as we consider these great truths here today, that our faith will be increased. Our love for God will be deepened. Our hope in the promises of God's word will be strengthened. And in all this, that Christ will be greatly magnified to the praise of his glorious grace. Let's read together Ephesians chapter 1 and we will read verses 11 through verse 14. This is the word of the living God. In him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. Let's pray. Holy Father, we are thankful for the many blessings that we enjoy and experience in Christ. Father, help us to never take these blessings for granted, but use these blessings in our life, Father, to point us to the true worship of you. That we would truly worship you in spirit and truth and that these blessings would cause us to praise your name for all eternity. And that we would see throughout and through these blessings that you and you alone, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are worthy of our praise. And that we would give it to no other. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. And so that brings us to our first heading, the God of redemption. You know, although the word is not found anywhere in Scripture, I don't care what language you you, you look in, the word Trinity is not found anywhere in Scripture. The great and glorious doctrine of the Trinity is throughout this passage. All three persons of the Godhead are mentioned in this passage. You know, salvation is is a work that is wrought by God. It has been well said that when we are saved, we are saved by God. We are saved from God. And we are saved for God. It is a complete work of God from start to finish. And in this passage, we will see each person of the Godhead has a unique responsibility in redemption and the salvation of lost mankind. And so as we consider the God of salvation, we will first look at God the Father, as He is outlined in this passage for us. We see in verse 11, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. Now we have to be careful with these personal pronouns and understand exactly who it is that they are talking of. This hymn 
is not the same hymn we will read of later on in this passage. This hymn speaks of God the Father. And we have been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. We've seen many times in the gospel accounts where Jesus said that He had come to do the will of the Father. Jesus wasn't here on His own mission, although He was here to accomplish a mission. It wasn't His own mission. Jesus didn't come here with His own agenda. He came here to accomplish the will of the Father, the mission that the Father had sent Him to accomplish. In this we see the great electing purposes of the Father. And so it's rightly said, it's the Father who chooses the elect. Election of the saints is the Father's will. The Father's plan. Now, there's a perfect cooperation within the triune Godhead in this great and glorious plan. What do we call that? We call that the covenant of redemption where the the Trinity covenanted within itself to save lost mankind. But it is the Father who purposes. It is the Father who wills. We read in verse 4 of of, of this book, He chose us in Him. Now, He is God the Father. Him is Christ. He, God the Father, chose us in Him, Christ. When? Before the foundation of the world. God's choice is not made within time and space. God's choice was made in eternity past. Before this world was created. And let me dispel a myth. God did not look down through time and space and choose you based on an action or a decision that you have made. Why? Because this decision was made before time and space existed. Before the foundation of the world. God chose you not based on anything that has to do with you. Not how good you are or or how good you can become or the fact that you were smart enough to believe in Jesus or you were humble enough to repent of your sins. God chose you according to His own purpose, according to His own good pleasure. Turn with me, if you will, to Romans chapter 9. I know... Most of you know exactly where I'm going with this. Romans chapter 9. Now I know in this this verse, Paul is speaking specifically of two men. But he also outlines for us why this took place. And he's, he's belaboring the fact that Israel in his day had rejected the Messiah. And and he wishes that all of Israel could be included. But he also tells us that it is not the nation Israel that is God's people. But it is the true believers 
that are God's people. He says, not the children of the flesh, referencing, and he uses Ishmael as a reference, Ishmael and Hagar, but the children, the child of promise, which was Isaac. And then he comes to verse 10. He says, and not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children, not child, but children by one man, our forefather Isaac, remember she had twins, Though they were not yet born and had done neither good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. Not the will of man, but the will of God. And that is God's great purpose of election to the end that he would be glorified. In the Gospel of John, and in the the prologue in the Gospel of John, as it starts out, as John is introducing this book, as he's introducing the theme, of course, the great and glorious words, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and we, we see that applied to the Lord Jesus Christ. But however, he goes down uh, later on in that very first chapter to verse 12. He says, But all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born... Now, how were they born? Not of blood. It's not a physical birth he's speaking of. Nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This is speaking to the great doctrine of the electing purposes of God. If you are found in Christ today, it is because God chose you to be there. And for we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you. 1 Thessalonians 1.4 Election of the saints is the will of the Father. Election of the saints is the work of the Father. We read, Who works all things according to the counsel of His will? Now we could argue it is the work of the Father and, and He uses agents in this plan, does He not? But it is the work of the Father. What did Jesus say when He came to this? I've come here to do the work of my Father to accomplish His will. The election of the saints is the work of the Father. Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. You know, a lot of times we, we get this idea that God the Father just is in the background and he makes this choice and then hands it over to Jesus and the Holy Spirit to accomplish it all. But the Holy Trinity is in complete and total unison in this great and glorious plan of redemption. They are in harmony. There's no disunity. You know, in a lot of our modern views of salvation that is in modern Christianity, it portrays a, an impotent God. So you see, we have a Father who elects a people to be saved. 
And now you can go two different ways with that. He, he either knew that they were going to accept Christ and that's why he chose them, which is, is wrong, because that, that puts the, the emphasis on the, the created, not the creator. Or he made a choice and chose a certain people, but then it's preached that Jesus came to this world and he died for everybody. Regardless of who the Father chose, he died for everybody. No, Father, you know, that's a good plan, but I have a better one. You see the, the dysfunction there? And, and, and then on top of that, we have a Holy Spirit who, who can't save anybody. Because it's according to the will of man, right? It's free will. And that is not the Trinity of the Bible, and that's not the Trinity of this passage. God is... He, he, he does salvation. He redeems His people from start to finish and everything in between. There's no such thing as free will, by the way. Adam and Eve had a neutral will. And at the fall, their will became slaves to sin. And now there is still no such thing as a free will. Because your will is either enslaved to sin or a slave of Christ. Which is a good thing, right? One more text of this electing purpose of God we find in Acts chapter 13. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And now listen to this. As many as decided received eternal life. Somebody knows that passage. I heard a no over here, right? It's not what that passage says. Paul writes, And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. You see the order there. They were appointed to eternal life by the electing purpose of God the Father. The one who works all things in accordance to the counsel of His will. And because of that, they believed. And nothing in all of creation can thwart or stop the will of the Father. It will be perfectly accomplished. You see, He's the one who is working all things according to the counsel of His will. And it will be done. And of course, the Holy Spirit is an agent of that work. Christ is an agent of that work. And, and of course, God uses many other means and agents in this plan. But it is His work. That brings us to the second person of the Trinity that we see in this passage. Verse 11, In Him, the Him there, it no longer speaks of God the Father. It transitions to God the Son. In Him we have obtained an inheritance. Obtained. In other words, we have been given an inheritance. We, we have received an inheritance. And this is in Christ, in the finished work of Christ. We are co-heirs with Christ because we have been adopted. And we'll see the adoption in this passage as well. 
So our redemption is obtained in Christ. Verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Redemption through his blood. Forgiveness of our sins. And this according to the riches of his grace. Have have you ever read that, just that verse and and contemplated what that's saying? Why does Christ's grace, why does the grace of God need to be rich? Full. You know that song we love to sing? Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than all my sin. And, and what Paul writes is where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. We are very sinful. There is much sin in the lives of God's people. And that takes much grace. Much grace. But Christ does not ever run out of grace for His people. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Exponentially more. And here it speaks of the rich, the riches of His grace. In other words, this grace that, that we can never reach the end of it as His people. This is a, a bank account that doesn't run dry. It can never go bankrupt. There's no recession that can, that can stop it. There's no high interest rate that can, that can make it unattainable for us. This is God's grace that is poured out on us richly in Christ. And what is this grace? The forgiveness of our sins through the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is Christ and through Christ and in Christ that we have obtained this great inheritance. We're told in Romans chapter 3, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Now, the forgiveness is a blessing, but it's not the inheritance. The, the, the blessing of the forgiveness and the redemption brings us to our inheritance. Now, there are different commentators that argue about the inheritance mentioned here. Some argue that Paul is arguing that the people of God are God's inheritance. And we see that theme in, in Old Testament, right? With Israel. Israel was God's inheritance. But we also see the theme in the New Testament that there is inheritance that's received by God's people. We are joint heirs with Christ. And so there's, in, in reality, we can say both. As the people of God, we are God's inheritance. Are we not? We're called the bride of Christ. We're called the body of Christ. Right? We, we belong to Christ. We, we are His. He has bought. We are bought with a price. But we also can say that we have an inheritance to look forward to. Remember to our, our call to worship in First Peter. What's it talk about? Inheritance. It's, it's undefiled. 
It, it cannot be tarnished. It cannot be taken away. Why? It's kept in heaven for us. And that's obtained through Christ. We are saved through faith in Christ. And Paul will labor that in chapter 2 of Ephesians. We, we know that passage well. Chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you are saved through faith, that not of yourself, it is a gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. Right? In verses 12 and 13 here. So that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. The first to hope. The first to, 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 to have faith. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed, in Him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. We're saved through faith in Christ. Now who is this that Paul speaks of? We who are the first to hope. That could mean those people that believed and heard the gospel and believed before the Ephesians did, right? I think it's I think it goes farther back than that. How were the Old Testament saints saved? Had they heard the gospel of Christ? Well, they heard the gospel of the promised Messiah. Charles Hodge comments, the people spoken of here designates not the first converts to Christianity, but the Jews who, before the Gentiles, had the Messiah as the object of their hopes. The expression hope used here does not simply mean to expect, but it means to place one's hope or confidence in someone. It is not, therefore, the Jews as such, but the believing Jews who are spoken of here as those who are in Christ, the partakers of the inheritance which he has purchased, end quote. So Paul's in this, remember we're just coming off this, this theme of this union, this Christ uniting all things, right? And we'll see this, this union fleshed out further in chapter 2 of Ephesians. We've seen that in Colossians. And other places that Paul speaks of this dividing wall being torn down between Jew and Gentile. And so Paul is saying the Jews, but then look where he goes with that. He includes the Gentiles. He said, you also. There's one, one Christ. There's one faith. There's one people. Paul enumerates that the redemption of Christ is not exclusively for the Jews. Now why is that important? It would be important to a first century Christian because the Jews were very biased against anybody who was not Jew. Anybody who was not part of their national heritage. Now they did accept proselytes, you know, people that converted to Judaism, but even those people were second class compared to those who were ethnic Jews. But Paul says, no. Redemption of Christ is not exclusively for the Jews, but it's for the Gentiles as well. You also, when you heard the gospel of your salvation. Paul 
Paul wrote in Romans 10, but the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That is an all-inclusive statement. That is a promise of God. It doesn't matter whether you are Jew or Gentile. And when we say Jew or Gentile, there's the Jews and then there's everybody else. Everybody else is a Gentile. Everyone who is not in the physical, ethnic nation of Israel is a Gentile. This says, if you confess with your mouth. Now, Paul was writing this to the church in Rome, which consisted of both Jews and Gentiles. Faith comes from hearing the gospel of Christ. Faith faith. The the redemption comes through faith in Christ. But this faith comes through hearing the gospel of Christ. It's not some arbitrary thing out there that that God has given that just, you know, you walk through a cloud or a special mist and all of a sudden you're a Christian. Or, Or you just happen to be sitting home one day and it just clicks in your mind, hey, I'm a Christian. No, faith comes through hearing the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, now, in our confession, there are exceptions. There has been an exception made to that, right? That in the purpose of the elect infants, right? But the, the, the normal means of, of faith is, is hearing the gospel. He says, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him. You see the order there. They heard the word of truth, which was the gospel. And then they believed that there was something substantial. There there was some substance. This wasn't just an arbitrary faith. They had a substance. They, They actually heard about the Lord Jesus Christ. That was the gospel message. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ, Romans 10, 17. And so in this passage, we, we've seen the Father who has elected a people. And we see the Son who has redeemed those people, who has purchased those people, who has, has paid for them with His own blood. And then we will see the Holy Spirit. God the Holy Spirit. We have the effectual, the effectual call of the Spirit. Now, some argue in this passage is speaking of the effectual call. Some some commentators go the other way and say this is all speaking of God's elective purposes. But again, the Holy Spirit being the agent sent by the Father and by the Son to um, apply the salvation, the redemption, must call us. 2 Thessalonians, Paul writes, But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. 
To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And several times in the gospel of John, Jesus promised the coming of the Holy Spirit and the work of the Holy Spirit. And so we must be effectually called by the Spirit. He is the giver of faith, is He not? When we hear the gospel, we call it regeneration. And one of the fruits of regeneration is the gift of faith. Another fruit of, of regeneration is, is repentance, the gift of repentance, the grace of repentance. But how does that take place in our lives? Our wills, which... We'll go on when we get to chapter 2 of Ephesians, which are dead in sins and trespasses, right? They must be made alive. This is the regenerating, recreating work of God the Holy Spirit. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Titus 3.5 is one of the clearest passages we have speaking of the word uh, speaking about the holy spirit's role in in regeneration in the new birth but in this passage we're not taught no, uh, we're not taught mainly about regeneration and the regenerating work of the holy spirit but we're talking about the sanctifying and the, and the guaranteeing work of the holy spirit in him you also in Christ, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. This promise that has been fulfilled, all the promises that Christ gave in the, in the Gospel of John, and, and we've been told, and in Acts, right? You stay there in the upper room until you receive the Holy Spirit, but when you receive the Spirit, power will come upon you, you know? And then you, will, then you can fulfill my great commission, Christ says. You can go and be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, right? But that's the work of the Holy Spirit. He's the one that gives us faith. But He's the guarantor of glorification. You know, we, and that brings us to the great doctrine of what? The perseverance of the saints, Right? The perseverance of the saints. In Him you also were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. Paul writes in, in Philippians, And I am sure of this, that He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That is the work of the Holy Spirit. The sanctifying Spirit of Christ will work in your life and in your heart. He has started that at the application of redemption in regeneration, and He will complete it at glorification. And that's mentioned here in our very uh, text today. You see, the word sealed is used. Now, we get the idea in, in Scripture, seal is, is something that when the king writes something or, or whatnot and, and rolls it up in a scroll and it's put a little wax on it and it's his ring and it seals it, right? That means that carries the authority of the king. It's It's... The king's word. We see, more importantly, uh, seals in the book of Revelation, right? Where, where the scroll comes out and it, and it has seals. And no one is found worthy to open the seals of this great book. It's, it's marked. It's, it's, it's guarded. 
And yet Christ is found worthy to open the seals. We are marked by God as His property. And that is one of the works of the Holy Spirit. We're sealed by the Holy Spirit. At the moment of your regeneration, you are marked by God as to His ownership of you. This is not an outward mark. Now we see that theme in, in the book of what? Ezekiel, right? Where they, before they went and destroyed all the wicked people, they sent someone forth to mark the people that were to be spared. We see that again in Revelation, where the people of God are marked. This is not an outward mark, but this is an inward reality. This is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit of God. That's how we are sealed. And the proof of this seal is that our lives exude forth this inward reality as we live for Christ. As we obey Him. As we serve Him. As we glorify God. As we worship God. This is that inner assurance that the Spirit of God communes with your spirit. You can't have any assurance assurance of salvation apart from the, the Holy Spirit of God in your life. <clears throat> John writes, Whoever keeps His commandments abides in God, and God in Him. And by this we know that He abides in us by the Spirit whom He has given us this is the seal dear ones you are sealed with this holy spirit of promise and we'll talk a little bit more of that as we get to our second part which is the gospel of redemption we have talked about the god of redemption father son and holy spirit and their roles and now we have come to the gospel of redemption the gospel that is mentioned here The word of truth. William Hendrickson writes, It is called the message of the truth because it reveals man's true condition, proclaims and advocates the only true way of escape, and admonishes saved sinners to show true gratitude in their whole lives. <coughs> Excuse me. Paul writes, As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What does it say in our passage here in Ephesians? What did we receive? What did we receive? Through Christ's blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses. That very statement says there's a need for forgiveness. You know, a lot of people don't like to be told they're sinful. A lot of people would rather compare themselves to people around them. Because we all can look around us and find someone worse than we are. Dear ones, you can look around you all you want. You will not see God's standard there. God's standards are Christ. And if you don't perfectly meet that standard, you will fall short. And let me tell you all of us do it's only that we are found in christ that we meet god's standards because christ meets god's standards christ is god's standard of righteousness 
We're told in Acts chapter 4, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The gospel says that we are very in much need of a Savior. And the gospel also says that Jesus Christ is the only Savior. If you hear a gospel that proclaims anything else, you're not hearing the gospel of God. You are not hearing the gospel of God. If you hear a gospel that promotes worldly wealth, that promotes personal pride, that promotes anything other than Jesus crucified for my sins, you're not hearing the right gospel. John writes, This is the message we have heard from Him and proclaim to you, that God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. It is a gospel of hope. Jesus said, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. It's a needy gospel. We need Christ. It presents us as needy. And it presents Christ as the altogether loving one who gives and gives graciously. What then is the gospel? It's the gospel of the crucified and risen Lord. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. And that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. We celebrate a crucified and risen Lord. And next week, our Lord willing, we will see a perfect, wonderful picture of that in baptism. As we'll have two people identifying with Christ. And his death, his burial, and his resurrection. It is a powerful gospel. Paul proclaims to the church in Rome, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation for all who believe. What's the power of God? The gospel. The proclaimed gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is the power of God to salvation. It is a foolish gospel. It offends people. People don't like to hear that they need help. People don't like to hear that they somehow can't make it on their own. I'm a self-made man. I can pull myself up by the bootstraps. You've heard all that. I can turn over a new leaf. It's still the same leaf. Just another side. You need to be a new leaf. Completely. You need to be a new creation. Only God can do that. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. It is a foolish gospel, yet in the foolishness of it, it is power. It is power. The power and wisdom of God. It is a gospel of reconciliation. 
We are enemies with God. And through the, the Lord Jesus Christ, we can now be not only friends, but more importantly, family. We are adopted. Adoption is mentioned in this passage. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. It is the gospel of reconciliation. We were in the kingdom of darkness, and we have been brought into the kingdom of light. We were children of our father, the devil, and now we have been made children of the living God. In Christ Jesus. There is, however, a required response to this gospel. Upon hearing this gospel, you are required to repent of your sins. Not required, commanded to repent of your sins and to place your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance. Paul writes in, uh, excuse me, Luke writes of Paul proclaiming this gospel in Acts chapter 17. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all people everywhere to repent. What is repentance? Repentance is a change of heart. It's a change of mind. It's a change of direction. Stop relying on your own self-righteousness, which the Bible calls filthy rags, and turn to Christ for His perfect righteous garments. Stop pursuing God and let God change you. You can't do it. The Bible tells us none seeks after God anyways, right? If you're seeking after God outside of the, the workings of God's Word and the power of the Holy Spirit, you're seeking a wrong God. Pursue God, yes, in His Word. Pursue God through the means of grace that He's given to the church. Repent and believe. That is the required response to the gospel. This gospel that we see in our, our, our passage today, it's proclaiming an inheritance. But most importantly, it's proclaiming an, a, a protected inheritance. Because we're not just sealed by the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit is a, a guarantor, a guarantee. The word guarantee is translated in other English translations as earnest or pledge. If you've ever been involved in any real estate deal, you've heard the word earnest, right? When you uh, are wanting to buy some property, you're usually required to put down an earnest fund, an earnest money, which is usually a non-refundable deposit that says, yes, I am serious about this, and it, and it locks the deal in. Now, that's a, a small kind of weak comparison because the Holy Spirit can never back out, never will back out. But He is our earnest. He is our guarantor. He is our guarantee that we are in Christ and that we will be glorified in Christ at the final consummation of all things. The 
The Holy Spirit not only marks us as belonging to God, but guarantees our final glorification. You can never be lost once you are saved. And if you live your life like you are lost, there's a really good chance you still are. Now, Christians can backslide. Christians do sin. Christians do make mistakes. But God doesn't leave us in our mistakes. He won't leave us to live in our sins. He will always call us to repentance. And you cannot, God will not, let you go. What did Jesus say? You're in my hand. Nothing can snatch you out of my hand. But if that's not enough, as a matter of fact, you're in the Father's hand. And nothing can snatch you out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Dear ones, that's the great and glorious assurance we have. If we are truly in Christ, we will remain in Christ. And we will be in Christ for all eternity. And the Holy Spirit is our guarantee of that truth. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. 1 Peter 1, 3-5. That brings us to our third and final heading, the goal of redemption. And I could sum that up in one simple Latin phrase. And we have it on our sign, by the way. Soli Deo Gloria. To the glory of God alone. God's purpose bring Him glory. His purposes bring Him glory. Everything that God has done, is doing, and will do is to the praise of His glorious grace. God receives the praise in creation, does He not? The heavens declare declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Christ's obedience and sacrifice bring God glory, do they not? Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. God receives the glory through Christ. God's people bring Him glory. What does the Bible say about each lost sheep that has been brought home? The heavens rejoice. The angels in heaven rejoice. They're not praising you, dear one. They're praising the God of your salvation. They're praising God for saving you and me. And on that same note, the destruction of the wicked will bring God glory. And we will stand and praise God for ridding the earth of all that is unrighteous, of all that is sinful. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace. 
God alone receives all the glory. That is God's highest and greatest purpose. That He receives all the glory. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless His name. Tell of His salvation from day to day. Declare His glory among the nations. His marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. And that psalm goes on to say, All those other gods are nothing. Only God is God. Remember the story... You know, there are, there are stories in the Bible that when you read them, it just, it just makes you get goosebumps and you just want to stand up and say, yes, right? You know, like David and Goliath and, and other stories. One of those stories for me is Elijah on Mount Carmel. And, and all these false prophets are dancing around for half the day and cutting themselves and beseeching their gods. And Elijah even kind of pokes fun at them. Maybe he's asleep, yell louder. Maybe he's away on vacation. And then when Elijah does his thing and prays to the living God, God answers in fire and burns the offering and burns the altar and burns the water and burns the dirt around the altar, around it. And what do the people say? The Lord, He is God. God alone gets the glory. Summarizing this passage, Charles Hodge wrote, This is the end both of the final redemption and of the present acceptance of believers. This clause, he's speaking of to to the praise of his glory. This clause, therefore, is to be referred to the whole of the preceding passage. Ye have received an inheritance, have been sealed, and have received the Holy Spirit as an earnest in order that God may be glorified. This is the last and highest end of redemption. End quote. In conclusion, this passage is about the blessings that believers receive by being united to Christ Jesus. Heaven is our reward and our inheritance. We are joint heirs with Christ. This section, starting in verse 3 and culminating in verse 14, is a beautiful song of praise and reaches this crescendo in the line to the praise of His glory. We are bought with a price. We are brought out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. We are saved to walk in the newness of life. We are sealed by the Holy Spirit who guarantees our final glorification. And as glorious as these great truths are, they are all meant to bring glory to our triune God. God has richly lavished us with these spiritual blessings in Christ. And so we find ourselves complete in Him to the praise of His glorious grace. Let's pray. Holy Father, our triune God, great and glorious are your works. You have chosen to redeem a sinful people, vile and wretched though we are, 
You have sent your Son to purchase us, which He has accomplished through the perfect obedience and through the shedding of His blood. You have raised Him again to life in power and glory and have seated Him at your right hand. And you and the Son both have sent us the Holy Spirit who has sealed us and has guaranteed us a place in your kingdom in heaven at the culmination of all things. And we have been blessed to be partakers in the first resurrection and we are guaranteed because of that to be partakers in the the second. And that the second death will, will not touch us. We thank you and we praise you for you alone are worthy. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. If you would stand together and we'll sing hymn number 112 in the hymns of grace.